The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I am delighted to welcome to our program today Dr. Raymond Seidler. He is a former senior scientist at the Environmental Protection Agency. He had been a full professor of microbiology at Oregon State University before going to the EPA, where he was the author of EPA's Biosafety Plan. He is the author of 160 publications in peer-reviewed literature. He is the co-author of two books and one of three founding editors of Molecular Ecology. What we're going to be talking about today, however, is Dr. Seidler's most recent publication that came across my desk, which is called Pesticide Use on Genetically Engineered Crops, and this was written for the Environmental Working Group. Dr. Seidler, welcome. Oh, Melinda, hi. Thank you for that great introduction. Fabulous to be with you today. Well, I'm very interested in consumer perception of genetically modified crops, GMOs in general, and I'm very curious to know your opinion about the way in which these crops were introduced, accepted, and their course now going well into the future, needing more and more pesticides or herbicide applications. So let me just start with a little bit of background about you. Tell me how it is that you became interested in GMOs. Well, while I was a professor at Oregon State University, I was approached, as were other scientists, to see if we would be interested in writing a document that would describe for the regulatory agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, what kinds of research would need to be done to evaluate the safety of this second green revolution of miracle crops that industry was promising us. And, heck, I took it as quite an intellectual challenge because it had never been done before. This was going to become an entirely new and wide-open aspect of biology, and I was fascinated by the challenge, and so I took it up, wrote a report that was uh, 30, 40 pages in length, and it laid out in general terms my ideas of what I thought needed to be done so that agencies like the EPA could correctly, quote-unquote, correctly and safely explain to industry what kinds of tests needed to be done to evaluate these products before they were put out into the field. Were those Simple tests, as that, were uh, the, being in the right place at the right time. Were those tests ever done? Yes. What had happened was the, the report that I wrote with those biosafety suggestions was adopted. It was funded by the U.S. Congress through the EPA. I was asked if I wanted to head up the research program that I had described. And that was not my original intent, but I took on the challenge and left the university and for the next 15 years headed up that research program. It was a fabulous challenge. We had adequate funding to conduct research within the uh, Environmental Protection Agency laboratories, and we also funded, I don't know how many, but numerous research grants throughout the United States placing money into various academic institutions, looking for the perspectives of other American scientists 
to help us figure out how to regulate these crops. So do you feel that they are adequately regulated today? Well, a lot has changed, Melinda, since I came to work for the EPA, and that would have been back in the 1980s. At the time, things were uh, looking at pesticidal crops and pesticidal microorganisms, two kinds of life forms for which only EPA had been given regulatory authority by the U.S. Congress. But in the early 90s, the U.S. Department of Agriculture became involved because these products that were coming were largely food crops like canola and products and corn and soybean and sugar derived from sugar beets, etc. And EPA is not into the food protection business. EPA is in the environmental protection business. So the food analyses, those were allocated originally to U.S. Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. And I, I would just want to share this with your listeners. The mission of the EPA is to protect the environment. The mission of the U.S. Department of Agriculture is to protect American agriculture and to build upon it and to flaunt it and to help our farmers. Two very, very different missions. Mm -hmm. And as I look back at what's happening today, those different missions are being reflected in some of the ways that I'm seeing and learning that these genetically engineered crops are being approved. And let's not just blame it on USDA being an easy ride for industry. I'm going to blame it on the U.S. Congress because U.S. Department of Agriculture does not have the regulatory authority to do anything that Congress doesn't give it. So let's not blame the USDA scientists and their regulators. Let's look at Congress for the need for more specific safety instructions on how to regulate crops. So as a microbiologist working at the EPA and with that mission to protect the environment, do you think it was smart to release these organisms, these genetically modified crops and their pollen and seeds, into the environment without really fully knowing what some of the unintended consequences might be? Well, you know, that's a good question uh, to ask, and we have years of hindsight information, data, experiences, and yes, I'm going to call it some catastrophes to look upon. So the simple answer is it was premature. The beautiful molecular biological techniques that were discovered back in the 1970s and expanded in the 80s and put out into our farmland in the early into mid-1990s, that development took place at a very, very rapid pace. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until actually long after we had crops growing out in the farm belt in America that uh, scientists, and including EPA scientists and my former colleagues, because I was retired when this happened, demonstrated eloquently that cross-pollination, that pollen from genetically engineered crops, could literally move 5, 10, 11 miles distance and cross-pollinate related crops that were not genetically engineered. And that discovery was made and published approximately six to eight years after we were growing these crops out in the open field. Hmm. And farmers who are not growing the genetically engineered crops are told to have buffers. And from what you're saying, my thinking is that those buffers are probably not adequate to prevent the cross-pollination. That is exactly true. And if you look at the history of the buffers or the so-called separation distances 
between genetically engineered and non-genetically engineered crops. It was kind of, uh, I'm going to have to say, one mistake after the next, after the next. And here's what I mean by this. First, they were recommendations. Then, in some cases, the distances were regulated. Then they were no longer regulated because decisions within the U.S. Department of Agriculture were made to deregulate a lot of these crops. And when a crop is deregulated, it simply means they can be put out and grown wherever a farmer can legally grow anything. There's no rules. It's the wild, wild west at work. Mm -hmm. And at one time, and I'm going to guesstimate about 12 years ago, U.S. Department of Agriculture realized, somebody must have realized, hey, this separation stuff isn't working because we're getting cross-pollination events. In some cases, we're even getting commingling of seeds between GMO and non-GMO crops. Let's coin the concept, and we're going to call it coexistence. And the term coexistence, as used by USDA, was, okay, boys and girls out in the farmland, we're telling you that it's possible to grow these crops for them to coexist side by side out in the farmland, the genetically engineered and the non-genetically engineered. But you all, as farmers, you need to work that out. And all we're asking as a regulatory agency is talk to your neighbors and, and work something out. Maybe the folks that are trying to grow, let's say, uh, organic crop, you could plant oh, perhaps a little bit later in the season so that you pollinate after the genetically engineered crop across the street. And, oh, yeah, well, planting a little bit later might cause us to miss the peak of a market, or it might extend uh, our maturation of our corn or soy or whatever it is a little bit late into the fall, and, and then we risk uh, a weather change or a, a, a rainfall event. And, you know, this isn't really going to work, USDA, and, and it didn't work. Melinda, let me give you a really precise example. I live in southern Oregon, and last spring we had a vote not to label GMOs or not about coexistence, but to ban the actual planting of genetically modified crops in two counties in southern Oregon. And the voters in those counties, and at least in the county where I live, voted two to one. 66% yes to ban, 34% no. Why would that kind of a wild victory have happened? And it's all about coexistence. Mm -hmm. And here's what happened. We live in an area in southwest Oregon that's one of the best seed-growing regions for cool weather crops in the world. And our family farmers, full-time residents in our county, were growing beet seeds, and Swiss chard to seed organically to supply the market in Europe. And, of course, our farmers had buyers for those seeds. And these are the seeds that go into the little packets that we buy and when we want to plant vegetables in our backyard. It's a good market. But then, a couple of few years ago, one of our local farmers discovered that Syngenta was planting a genetically engineered sugar beet crop in our county secretly, at about a couple of dozen or so locations, checkerboarded all over the county, not clustered, but checkerboarded, so that virtually any American farmer that wanted to grow a similar taxonomic group of plants to seeds would be guaranteed to be cross-contaminated. 
Now, how's that for a neighborly discussion to work out the concept of coexistence? Hmm. It didn't work. The American farmers had meetings with the representatives from the Swiss corporation Syngenta. The lawyers for Syngenta walked out of the meetings, and our farmers raised their hands and said, what are we supposed to do now to try to grow our organic crops? So that's one of the big reasons why that vote turned out the way it is. Our local family farmers were deeply involved in communicating with the public what was happening to them. And this is not a problem that is unique to southwest Oregon. This is happening in the United States in general. This has happened in Mexico where there is a temporary ban on growing Monsanto corn. This has happened with the flax product in Canada, etc., etc. So coexistence, hey, it's not working, can't work, costs the non-genetically engineered farmers dearly, financially, costs them money. This is not fair. And at one time there was a proposal that the non-genetically engineered farmers or those trying to produce an organic crop, that they should be the one that would pay for insurance to ask for compensation if cross-contamination didn't work. Not the genetically engineered crop folks, but just the one side. And that's not co, that's not compatible, that's not coexistence, that's one side bullying. And that just doesn't work for most American farmers. That's right. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Raymond Seidler. He's a former senior scientist at the Environmental Protection Agency and author of the EPA's Biosafety Plan. And what we're talking about today, well, many things related to GMO, but why I wanted to have him on the program is because he is also the author of a paper published in September of 2014 titled Pesticide Use on Genetically Engineered Crops for the Environmental Working Group. You know, Dr. Seidler, there are so many directions we can go with this conversation. And I know that one of the issues that is brought to consumers is that, hey, don't worry about it. GMOs are safe. And we're talking about the GMO crop and food crop itself. So GMO, don't worry. GMO corn, GMO soy, canola, it's all safe. Don't worry about it. We've got all of these scientists coming together saying they're safe. But the one thing that consumers, I don't think, understand fully is that these genetically engineered crops are engineered to withstand the spraying of herbicides and pesticides. And that was really what I loved about this paper that you published is that you made it very clear that even though we are told that GMO crops are so wonderful because they're going to require less spraying, indeed, and in fact, we are using many more pounds of herbicides as a result of resistance. So tell me a little bit about that and what you think our listeners should know. Absolutely. Really, really good topic. Uh, Good questions there, Melinda. Well, in the mid-1990s, there are two genetically engineered genes that uh, the seed producers, the chemical corporations, we're putting into most of our crops. And today, about 99% of the genetically engineered crops have one or the other or both. And one is, as you said, resistance to direct spray with a pesticide called Roundup. That's the commercial name, the chemical name of the active ingredient in Roundup is called glyphosate. The second gene product is something called BT toxin-producing gene. And this makes a toxin that is naturally found in some soil bacteria, and the target of this toxin would be the worms that want to chew on our crops, whether it be soybeans or corn or canola plants or whatever. 
And for approximately the first six to eight years of use, we were told that pesticide use had dropped dramatically on American farms because of the success of this so-called naturally occurring Bt toxin. And if you look at some of the graphs that are plotting the amount of pesticide that is used over time, you see two different kinds of things. One, you see the active ingredient in Roundup, which is called glyphosate, going up, 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 12 to 13 fold from the crop introduction of around 1996 until about roughly 2010, 2011, which is the last reportable period. And to the point where today, farmers are applying about 100,000 tons of glyphosate to American farmland. Now, not a ton, not one ton, not 10 tons, not 1,000 tons, 100,000 tons of an herbicide that is used typically two to sometimes three times in one crop year for year after year after year on the same 150, 170 million acres. Along with that was it this Bt toxin that was supposed to be allowing the reduction in pesticide use and was supposed to be very successful for allowing our farmers to produce uh, a better-looking crop that, you know, kernels of corn that were not munched on. But recently, and I mean this year, some other American scientists discovered some other chemical has been used on virtually all of the seeds that are genetically engineered. Now, these chemicals, I want to emphasize, they are not genetically engineered. They kind of represent something out of the past, similar to DDT, and they are neurotoxins. They are chemical chemicals (laughs) that are applied to the seeds that our farmers buy, and they also have as their target the worms that are chewing on our crops. And so this says several things to me. My God, they've been used since 2004. Virtually no Americans knew about this. We're supposed to be using less pesticide, not increased pesticide. These toxins are called neonicotinoids. Let's just abbreviate it as NEOs. A research professor at Harvard University by the name of Alex Liu this summer in an NPR interview called these NEOs the new DDT because they persist, they kill pollinators, beneficial insects, and they do spread and last out in the environment for long periods of time. In the last 10 years that they've been used, and most Americans think we're using less pesticide, these insecticides have increased of the order of 10 times, from approximately 30 million pounds total just in the state of Iowa up to about 350 million pounds just in the state of Iowa. So you can ask these kinds of questions. What's going on in the other states? We don't know. Is this a secret? Because we've been told that insecticide use has been going down. But yet we see in Iowa, on Iowa corn, it goes up tenfold. And why are we using these chemicals at all? We were told time and time and time again that the Bt toxin is doing a great job. It's allowing farmers to use less chemicals But somewhere hidden in the background of all of that propaganda is this tenfold increase in the use of NEOs. It's not just being used in Iowa. It's being used 
not just on genetically engineered corn and all the other states where that's being grown, but it's also being used on, as I said, soybean seeds, canola seeds, etc. So it's out there, it's increased tenfold, and does this mean that the Bt toxin is now rendered useless? It's not working? And if that's true, that's a bit scary. And if that's a false statement, why are we using all of these new chemicals? Mm-hmm. And it's, again, only been this year that American scientists have been able to reveal these numbers about these chemicals. And other scientists, including Dr. Lou at Harvard, has shown that these chemicals are very likely the number one cause of colony collapse disorder. And darn it, I have to tell you, this again going back to my home state of Oregon, about two months ago, there was a catastrophic pollinator bee kill in the parking lot in a major shopping mall in Portland, Oregon, the day after the neos were sprayed in trees in the parking lot. Hmm. Similar event with the planting of corn killed over 30 million bees in Ontario, Canada last year. So why are we doing this? If we don't need these chemicals, BT toxin is still working, why are we using it? And here's the answer. There are two answers. One, there are now reports of major failures of the effectiveness of BT toxin. The insects are getting resistant, just like the weeds are gotten resistant to the herbicide glyphosate. So basically the main reasons for genetically engineering our crops, it looks like both sides are now failing. The herbicide is failing, and now the BT toxin is failing. And if the BT toxin is not failing, it's still working, why are we using these chemicals? Because our farmers are buying seeds from chemical corporations. They make their money by selling chemicals. And their strategy is to put as many chemicals, <laughs> sell as many chemicals to our farmers as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. So I don't like either choice. Either the BT toxin is failing, and we've not been told that adequately, or the neotoxins are just there for the bottom line for making more money. Whatever the answer is there, it does not make me very comfortable. Well, early in our discussion, you had mentioned that the role of the EPA was to protect the environment. And yet, in your report, you state presumably the same information was presented to industry-friendly U.S. regulatory bodies that recently decided not to change the use status of these neonics, is how you presented here, in the United States. And you refer to a report titled, EPA Denies Emergency Petition to Suspend One of These Neonicotinoid Pesticides. So what I want to know is, how is it that if the role of the EPA is to indeed protect the environment, how has this U.S. regulatory body become so industry-friendly? Okay. Melinda, my own personal opinion will prevail at this moment. And here's the, to me, it's pretty simple. Most Americans do not understand that regulators make decisions, it's required of them, with a cost-benefit analysis in their equations. And it was perceived by our American regulators 
that the benefit of allowing NEOs to come out to the environment, coded on the seeds, based upon data and information and research conducted by industry, conducted by industry, our regulators made the assumption that the cost benefit, the environmental cost to the benefit to American farmers was significant in favor of the farmers who needed help in controlling pests to keep up their economic well-being, to keep the United States a major exporter of food, etc. So they said, yep, let's go with NEOs. All of those decisions were made almost a year ago, and it has only been in this 2014 year that there has become now a scientific consensus that the neochemicals are the most likely cause of colony collapse disorder. That, I contend, was really not known over a year ago. Hmm. Okay, this is how things develop. Out of sync sometimes, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So in my estimation, I would like our regulators to go back now and reconsider this situation. You may be aware that it's only now been in the last two months that American scientists have shown another propaganda issue from or information about the NEOs where industry has promised our regulators that those chemicals would stay associated with the seeds and go systemically throughout the plant and would stay on the farm. Two months ago, we read a publication that showed that that was not the case. So when our regulators are given this kind of misinformation from industry, our regulators don't have any independent place to go to back up. You know, they'll, they'll go and look at the academic research in the world, but there was nothing there a year ago that said that these nicotinoids like DDT will go, will move around, will last over winter, will expose beneficial organisms that may not even be on the farm. That information wasn't out there when our regulators were under the gun to make decisions. Basically, they thought to help the farm economy. So that's my personal opinion of what happened and how we got to where we are today. Well, Dr. Seidler, unfortunately, our time is up. And I want to give you just a little bit of time to pull from this report or leave our listeners with a message that I may not have brought up during our interview. My message would be the American people are looking at a revolution in how food is produced in this country and other countries of the world that label. There are 64 countries representing a third of the world's population. They're looking for us to take leadership, and we can take leadership by recognizing that there are other successful ways that have been described for decades to grow our food products that do not rely so heavily on monoculture, massive amounts of petroleum-based chemicals. The world is watching us. Are we going to label our foods, and are we going to correct these issues and problems? 
I want to thank you so much for your time today and for your work at the EPA and beyond. I will let our listeners have access to the link to your latest report that I found so interesting, which is Pesticide Use on Genetically Engineered Crops. We'll make sure that's on our website. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. We have been speaking again with Dr. Raymond Seidler, a former senior scientist at the Environmental Protection Agency and author of the EPA's Biosafety Plan, full professor of microbiology at Oregon State University before going to the EPA, and author of Pesticide Use on Genetically Engineered Crops and the Escalating Use of Those Pesticides. Dr. Seidler, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Melinda, for all that you do. 